Father, as we come against your word, we ask for help and grace to understand it and to apply it to our hearts and lives. Lord, do us good, please, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, on a Sunday evening when I'm here, we are looking at 2 Corinthians, and we're continuing virtually where we left off last time um, in chapter 2. And uh, we're really looking to go look at verses from 14 perhaps to 17. Uh, I want to ask you a question. Do you smell? You say, pardon? Do you smell? Now, before you get a bit concerned, let me ask it again. Do you smell spiritually? Oh, that sounds better, doesn't it? Do you smell spiritually? Well, We'll come to that in a moment because there is something in this text about that. We are going to look from verse 14 to the end and it's our triumph in Christ. It's a good subject, a great subject. Um, the verses prior to this have been a bit difficult. Uh, we won't go through it all again, but uh, Paul is relating to a matter back in 1 Corinthians 5 where somebody had offended or sinned and there was a question of repentance and restoration and he deals with that. So it, it was a difficult little passage there. And then towards the end of that little section he says lest Satan should get an advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. The clear implication is that Satan has been at work. The man who has sinned, it was his responsibility that he sinned. But then the fallout from that it was a, was a work of the enemy who uh, loves to sow discord amongst the brothers and sisters and was doing a, a, a almost, in one sense, worse than what had happened in the beginning and all this that was going on and Paul seeks to, to, to deal with it and he realizes behind all this discourse, behind the discord, behind all these problems, there was an enemy. Now, I think because he's mentioned that in that verse, it leads him on to think of enemies and warfare and battles and victories. Because he talks in verse 14, Now thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. And the background to this is, is fairly straightforward. I'm, I'm going to just tell you what it is briefly. The application of this background is open to discussion. And there are various ways folk have interpreted it, interpreted and applied it. I will mention one or two, and then you know, obviously you can think about it yourselves. So, the background all right, to this is the vision of the of the situation in Rome when they had this, what is called triumphus, Latin word, all right, meaning triumph, in which the victorious general in Rome, all right, the commander, the one in chief, along with his proud soldiers, used to lead in triumphal procession, if you can imagine this procession, going through Rome, right? all the folk are, 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 are lying down the streets and shouting and, and waving and all the rest of it, and they're going towards uh, the emperor's palace and so on, and it's a great uh, march of triumph. Uh, there's been a great victory. 
And apparently, not everyone was granted this. Not every general, not every uh, commander uh, was granted this, even after a victory. It had to be a, a great victory. I'm told that there had to be at least 5,000 of the enemy who were slain. I'm told that all the heads of these, uh, of these other uh, armies and so on had to be put to death. I'm told that the, the, the ground, the area, was totally uh, captured or recaptured for Rome. It was a big thing. It wasn't just an ordinary little parade. Uh, this was a big thing. And it's only granted to a few. And so here's this commander, this general. He's leading his troops in front of him. And there'd be trumpets and be great big noise and all kinds of things were going on. And then there were a procession of prisoners. These prisoners were probably being chained, being long, long lines of these prisoners, all in chains. And uh, they'd be subject to ridicule. And people were shouting, nasty things and perhaps throwing things at them and so on. And alongside uh, the road, uh, they, would have, they, be, they would be um, incense burning, right? It's very uh, wonderful smell ascending up to demonstrate uh, the glory of the victory. And that later would be at the, at the temples of their gods and so forth. But all this incense, uh, the, the smell of this incense would be there as they went. And possibly as well, um, garlands of flowers and so on. So this is a big thing. Now, it does appear that uh, some of the prisoners, right, would be put to death. When they got to the end, Rome, they'd be put to death. Some of them would be set free. Set free in the sense of having the chains off, but not set free completely, set free to serve uh, the Romans, serve the generals, serve um, the emperor, and to serve others in a servant capacity. And uh, they may have been already chosen beforehand. It may be that they waited till the procession was finished, and then this one to death, this one to go free. So that's the picture that is behind this. Um, this, this little story about the procession and the, and the fragrance and so forth. Now, how do we understand that? Well, some things are fairly easy. We thank God that the Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ gained a great victory. He is victorious. He was victorious. He is victorious. He will be victorious. You could say that the whole history of the Bible is one of defeat and victory. There was a great defeat in a sense. There was a work of Satan right back in the garden where uh, Satan uh, tempted uh, Eve and Adam and they fell. It, there was a defeat. It was a dreadful defeat. But even in that defeat, God promised there would be a victory. And we know it well, it's often quoted by preachers on preaching the gospel and saying what the first, if you like, gospel promise. And uh, I'll just read it to you, so we have it exactly here. Um, the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between, that, between thee 
and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. In other words, from the woman would come one born of a woman and he would suffer but yet he would destroy him who had the power of sin and death and so forth. Satan would be ultimately defeated. He would have victories along the way, small temporal victories all the way through the Bible, but the Lord Jesus Christ would come and deal him a fatal blow on the cross in the resurrection. Our Lord Jesus Christ is victorious, and when he comes, of course, that will be complete. So that's an easy picture to understand. And we need to remember that. We're living in days when Christians seem to be defeated on every hand. The enemy seems to be uh, having a great time. Uh, sin is increasing almost daily. You can't read almost anything, anything, without some reference to immorality. I know I go on about this a little bit, but uh, and it's not that I'm going looking for it. Believe me, I'm not looking for it. Uh, but I read a little bit about the, the sports, what's going on in the world of sport. And all of a sudden, there'll be something about some trans person who is taking part in this sport or that sport. I thought, what on earth is this going to do with sport? But there it is. It's in the sporting world. You know, I love my rugby. And there's a thing about this trans business in the rugby world. Thankfully, they, they think they've sorted it out and said, no, we're not having it, which is only right, of course. But it's invading. It's invading us. Invading us. And everybody has to have an opinion about this. You read a little note, a little biography of somebody, a politician or famous, and then they'll have their views on I'm not interested in their views on LGBT and all that nonsense. But as if we must have it. We must be told where they are and where they stand. And obviously, if the BBC is involved, it's always to the detriment of that which is normal and natural and Christian. We're living in dark days. We really are. And it's going to get worse. The more we give in to them, the government gives in to them, the educational business, the, the health authorities, the more they give in to them, the more they will come. So, the enemy is laughing. But, but Christ is still the victor. Christ is still victorious. Christ has promised, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I am still in charge. I will do what my father has determined that I will do. I will have a people to myself. I will gather them in. I will do it. And Satan and all the force and all the hordes of hell shall not, will not, cannot prevail against it. Hallelujah. We are on the victory side. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. So, now how do we understand the next little bit? Well, there's two ways of thinking, well, a couple of ways, but let me just say what is suggested. One is that we are the soldiers 
whom Christ leads. He's the great commander, and he's had a great victory on the cross. All right, and praise God, and we are his soldiers. We are soldiers of the Lord Jesus. As I was thinking about these things, um, I remembered a little song we used to sing in Sunday school. Now, that's going a long way back, right? 70 years or more. And we used to sing a little song, uh, I'm too young to march with the infantry. Anybody remember that? There's a young lady at the back nodding. All right. I'm too young to march with the infantry, ride with the cavalry, scoop, uh, shoot the artillery. I'm too young uh, to march with the infantry, but I'm in the Lord's army. And we used to go like this. A lovely little song. Right? I'll sing it to you one day, but not tonight. Now, we are in the Lord's army. We are still in the Lord's army. What a privilege to belong to the Lord's army. We, we sing that song, do we? Who is on the Lord's side? Who for him will go? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are in the army of the Lord. What a privilege. What a privilege to be with him, to march with him, to be on the victory side. No, we will win. We will, whatever will happen, whatever the world will do to us, whatever the devil will do to us, we will win. We're on the victory side. It cannot be otherwise. So it's that thought of being the soldiers whom the Lord is leading. The other thought is that we are actually the captives of the commander. Uh, and this is interesting. We are those he has captured. Right? He's captured us from the from the from the uh, the powers of darkness and he's he's captured us and he is displaying to the world this uh, person I have captured. This person I have captured. I brought them out of that land into my land. Out of that kingdom into my kingdom. We've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we are now, or will be, the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the terms that Paul often uses to describe himself is, it's a, in, the, in, our, in our word, in our version, it's the servant of Jesus Christ. The literal, means, literal word is bond slave. I'm a bond slave. I've been bought with a price. I'm not my own. I belong entirely to he who bought me, the Savior with his precious blood. He who bought me. I belong to him. I'm totally his. I have no rights of my own. I'm at his disposal to do as he wills, when he wills, uh, as he wills. That's my position. Here's this mighty apostle. Here's this great preacher, teacher, evangelist, missionary. And he says, I'm a bond slave. That's all I am, is a bond slave of the Lord Jesus. Would you like to be called a bond slave? Would you like to think that you're a slave of the Savior? And the times when we just want to do our own thing and be our own whatever we want to be, isn't that the problem with us oftentimes? It's self, 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 and more self. Self is not what Paul was. I can never picture him taking a selfie. Right? Oh, Paul, can I have a photo with you? No, you can't. Why would you want to have a photo with a bond slave? That's all I am, a bond slave. So there's that thought there. And then this aroma. 
Well, it's very interesting, uh, uh, this kind of aroma, the incense burning. Incense burning is a long history, Bible history, as you know. Um, back in the days of the tabernacle, uh, the temple, and God gives specific instructions regarding incense, its constitution, how it was made, who made it, when it was to be burnt. Um, and this sweet-smelling incense uh, rose, as it were, we use in human language, not pictorial language, metaphorical language, as it were, uh, to the nostrils of God. And God, God had this aroma come up, and it was pleasing to him. And it was obviously at the same time of the sacrifices. And I was thinking about this. I thought, why is there so much emphasis on the, on the incense? It's not the incense that makes atonement. It's not the incense that deals with our sin. It's the sacrifice. But this incense is there. And I'm thinking, I wonder why that, why that is. And this is a suggestion. Because of the smell of death and this animal has been, uh, been put to death, slaughtered, and the blood flowing, and, and the stench there must have been from these things. When I was in the civil service in Bridgend, uh, many years ago, our office was at the edge of town, and there was a river which ran through the town, and the other side of our office was the, the slaughterhouse. It was a market town similar to Hailsham, and the farmers from all around brought their animals down, and they were slaughtered in this place. And in the summer, particularly on a hot day, you knew it was there. The whole of Bridgend knew it was there. Oh, the stench was horrendous. They've since moved it from there out of town. Now, here's this sacrificial system. God instituted this. God says you need to make atonement for your sins, and atonement must be the shedding of blood. There must be slaughter. There's violence done to an animal. An innocent animal has to suffer in the place of my people because they have sinned. And in a sense, they've done violence to my law. They've offended me by breaking my law. And the only way they can atone for that is to have a substitute animal. And that animal will die their death and suffer on their behalf. And, of course, this is the glorious picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffers on behalf of his people. He sheds his blood on behalf of his people. He, he bears the wrath of God in his own body on the tree. For us, for you, for me. And then the incense. God sees the blood and he sees the death and he sees all that's been done. And he accepts it on behalf of his people. And he forgives the people. Forgive, it's an atonement for sin. And the incense is pleasing to him. It pleases God. I think we need to be careful, particularly we preachers, when we talk about the pleasure that God had in the death of his son. You know, we quote a verse, don't we? It pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief. Isaiah 53. I dare to say this to you. God had no pleasure in the actual death of his son as a death. The pleasure that God had from it, as it were, was that it was accomplishing his sovereign purposes in particular redemption. Have you got that? 
God wasn't pleased to see his only begotten son suffering and bleeding and dying in such a way. But God knew as the son knew. There was no other way for folk <coughs> such as you and such as me. There was no other way for sinners to be, to be saved, to be redeemed, to be reconciled, to be brought to God. But he had to die and he had to suffer violently as the wrath of God came upon him. And the outcome was pleasing to him. We need, we need to go carefully. We need to go carefully. The Lord Jesus died, Lord Jesus Christ didn't enjoy the suffering. That would make him less than human. But he endured the suffering. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He went through Gethsemane knowing what was going to happen. He went through the cross knowing what was happening. He cries, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He didn't enjoy the experience. But it was absolutely necessary because there was no other way to reconcile a people to himself. So we go carefully. So this incense. Now, Strangely enough, Paul says, we, you and me, if we are believers, we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and them that perished. So here's these two groups of prisoners going up. Some will be set free to serve and others will be put to death. And one is a savor to death, one is a savor to life. And I was thinking about this, and this is why I asked the question, how do you smell spiritually? Is there a sweet fragrance of Christ about you? I've got a funny thing about smells, but uh, I'll spare you some of the thoughts, but I can, I can never forget a funeral service I did in Stanmore, North London, for a West Indian gentleman. I think he was the son of one of the members. And they had the coffin there in front of the pulpit, and it was open. The man was in it. It was all right for people sitting up there. They couldn't see it, but I could. The whole service, there was this man dead there. And, and I thought he was smelling. I think I was wrong on reflection, because I think there were lilies either side, and lilies have a strong smell, and I don't like it. Just person, but I don't like it. It's almost to me the smell of death. So I think that's where it was coming from. But I saw the, this man, and I thought it was him. Oh, terrible. Anyway, that was their tradition. Now, here's the question Do we smell sweetly spiritually? Is there a fragrance about us that was about the Lord Jesus? There's something fragrant, something sweet, something, something lovely about our Savior. Or are people put off by who we are and what we are? They say, well, I, if that's Christianity, I don't want it. If that person, if that woman's a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian. Because I know the things she does, the things she says, I know that I live next door to her, or I work with her, or I go to the shop with her, or whatever. Is there a fragrance of the Lord Jesus about us? I've discovered a little gadget. It's a very clever little gadget. It's a three-pin socket thing. You fit, you fit into a socket. 
and it's got three little vials of perfume in it. And obviously, there's a little element, electrical element, that gets hot, very slight, probably a light bulb's worth. It gets hot, and then the, the perfume or comes out the top. It's clever, isn't it? So when you go into my house, if you're ever invited, you open the front door and, oh, that smells nice. Can't f smell the fish and chips I've cooked, but you can smell the, oh, that's nice. That's nice. And it's the heat in the perfume that makes it go. You know the trouble with some of us? We are cold goldfish. We are cold-hearted. We're not warm Christians. You can't have fragrance from something that which is cold and hard. To have a fragrance, you need a bit of warmth. Now, I almost said passion, but that might send some people a bit too funny. It's a Celtic thing. It's not a Celtic thing. But we all need a warmth. Something, something, something warm about us. In a way, we care about people. In a way, we love people. In a way, we pray for people. There needs to be a warmth. One of the things that impressed me greatly about Mike Meller, listening to preach and having him in my house, was that he had such a zeal uh, to preach the gospel to sinners. You know he's involved in the open air uh, ministry. And even now, I think he's 70 plus and retired officially, he still wants to go out in the open air and, and tell people about Jesus. We need this warmth. And the other thing I've come across is this. I haven't got one in my house yet. I might do. Who knows? So I'm in a friend's house, and I move from one room into the next room. And as I'm going along, I think it was the hallway, Nobody there? No cut? Psst. Strange. Anyway, walked on the end. Came back later on. Psst. I thought, what's going on here? Psst. Now, some of you know. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. But what it is, you can get a little gadget on the wall, with this little perfume stuff in, that when you pass, when there's movement, when you walk past it, there's a sensor picks up the movement and activates this little thing which gives a puff of perfume. Psh! Isn't that clever? You have to get one. It probably costs a lot. Now, we need to be a people who don't have little pss every now and again, but who are continuously smelling sweetly for Jesus. Have you got that? That's our walk. We walk every day back and forth to the shops, to the, to the bank, to the, wherever we go. We walk and people see us and they talk to us. Is there something about us that is, that is pleasant and they're pleased to see us and they say, thank you for doing that little thing. Well, there's nothing much at all, but that's kind of you. We want to be people who are kind because God has been kind to us. Have you got that? God has been so kind to us. We want to be kind to other people. God has been so merciful to us. We want to be merciful to others. God has loved us so much and forgiven us so much. We want to love other people. Which would be but a fair reflection of his great love and mercy to us. So, do you smell? Do you smell sweetly? Are you attractive? 
in a spiritual sense to others. Now, the sad thing is, in the real world, you can be as lovely and as kind as you can and should be, and some people are drawn to it, so it's a savour, fragrance to life, and other people are repelled by it. And that's not your fault. It's their fault. Because your kindness reflects on their unkindness. Your selfishness reflects on their selfishness. They live lives completely different to you, and they don't like it that you live a life that's pleasing God because they don't, and they don't want it, and they don't like seeing you do it, and it's a challenge to them. If you worked in an environment of secular employment, um, you'll come across people who uh, say, I admire you because you're a Christian, words that effect. But you'll also come across people who say, I don't believe what you believe. I think you're stupid. I think you've been brainwashed. I think this, this, this. And they say some terrible things about you. And they deliberately swear more, curse more, tell filthy jokes deliberately in front of you to wind you up. I won't tell you the words he used because they weren't very pleasant, but I was to go to a garage and he was forever winding me up, the fellow in the garage. And he says lots of things. And he says terrible things. Deliberately. Look out, here's the vicar. Come in. Don't bleep, 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 bleep. Deliberately. To wind me up. The Lord have mercy upon you. Because I'm not going to. You know. So, we're nearly finished. The last thing I will say, because they'll finish the section, is Verse 17, which is so important. For we are, not, we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. The basis of our fragrance is the word of God and in Christ. Apparently this word corrupt can mean peddling. It can mean diluting. There were people who, uh, in Paul's day, so I'm told, <coughs> they had this thing <coughs> where they would, would sell a product, say, say wine, they would sell this wine, and they, they would give someone a little drop, say, it's a sample, and oh, that sounds very, tastes very good, okay, and so I'll have a couple of bottles of skins, it was in those days, so I'll have some skins of this, and when they got home, of course, it had been diluted almost beyond measure. They diluted. And Paul was concerned because in Corinth, the people were coming and they were diluting the gospel, diluting the word of God. Oh, dear ones, how careful we have to be that we don't, do not dilute the word of God. God just kept us in, in Garden Road from that, uh, and we watch for it, uh, but it's so easily done, diluting the word of God, lowering the standard, lowering the truth, lowering the application of the truth. Peddling, corrupt, this pure word of God. We need to speak, we need to pray for preachers of the gospel. We need to pray for young men who are going into the ministry. Lord, keep them faithful to your word. One of the worst things I've seen over the years is young men who've gone in 
to college or into seminary full of fire and they've learned things which are good and proper but the fire's gone out the fire's gone out and now they're very clever and very academic uh, but very empty pray 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 so nearly finished what are we going to learn from this well we need to remember we're on the victory side alright when you go out to the door tonight say I am on the victory side amen praise the Lord I'm in the Lord's army amen say that and then live it out live as a soldier of Christ amazing the in the Queen's funeral and the procession, how they all march together. Amazing. I was trying to watch the legs, you know, if they were going in step. And it's amazing in step. It's all along. It's amazing. They're disciplined. Boy, they're disciplined. We need to be disciplined in the army of the Lord. And you can, you can apply it as yourself, as you know. And then may there be a fragrance, a fragrance in our lives, in our hearts, in our prayers, in our conversations with people. And they might know from whence we come. We belong to Jesus. We fail. We make mistakes. We say things. We do things. But our hearts are his. And we want to live for him and his glory and his praise. And then watch for the word. Keep faithful to the word. The word of God. The word of Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this illustration that Paul uses. We pray that we might take some of the things that are helpful from it and that we might live accordingly, that we might be a saver of life unto life rather than death unto death. There may be a fragrance about us and there may be a, a warmth and a real love for sinners in our hearts. Lord, we're a needy people. We're just ordinary people. Nobody's special here in Gordon Road. We're ordinary people. But Lord, you are special. And you can bless us uh, clay pots as we are, worms as we are. You can bless us and use us to great effect for your great glory as it pleases you. Bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. So I was thinking, now what hymn should we have? And I thought, I know what we'll have. We'll have a resurrection hymn. Remind the enemy that we are serving a risen Savior. So, 239, you'll all know it ever so well. Uh, we could sing it unaccompanied, but we won't. All right. Thine be the glory, risen, conquering Son. Endless is the victory. Thou, or death, has won. Angels in bright raiment rolled the stone away, kept the folded grave crews where thy body lay. Thine be the glory, risen, conquering Son. Endless is the victory. Thou or death has won. We stand to sing two, three, nine.
Father, we thank you for the privilege of being in thy house on thy day, with thy people worshipping thyself. Blessed be thy name. And now, with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and love of God the Father, as we fellowship with the Holy Spirit, rest and abide with God's people here and everywhere until he shall come, and then forevermore.